the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be with us all evermore. Amen. Please be seated. And again, if you haven't had a chance to get your lunch, please feel free to go ahead and grab it and make yourselves comfortable. Again, it's not impolite to eat while I'm talking. It may be impolite to eat when other people are talking, but you have permission to do so today. Well, thank you for coming out for this, uh, the first of our Lenten lectures. Lent, as you know, is a very important time of the year. It is a time of preparation. As you heard on Ash Wednesday, from the earliest days of the church's history, this has been a time in which Christians have reflected back on the sacrifices made on our behalf by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a time for us to anticipate and indeed to prepare our hearts and our minds for the Paschal mystery, for Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross and the commemoration of his resurrection. And so that's why we're having these Lenten series, just an opportunity for us to sort of mark out this time and to prepare us. And we thought that a good subject, that is, the clergy and I thought that a good subject to begin this inaugural Lenten series was the subject of the church. I think you would all recognize that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the centerpiece of world history. Uh, it is the focus of everything that the New Testament speaks of. Indeed, one might go so far as to say it is the centerpiece of the entire biblical witness. I like to say that the Bible has many writers, but it has one author and it has one theme. The one author is God the Holy Spirit, and the one theme is the redeeming work of God in the person of Jesus Christ. That's really what it's all about. This is very clear when you read through the New Testament. Fully half of the Gospel of John, which has over 20 chapters, fully half of the Gospel of John is given over to just the last week of Jesus' life. Now, when you think about it, Jesus lived on this earth for 33 years. He ministered for three of those years, and yet half of the Gospel of John is given over to just those days between what we call Palm Sunday, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and Easter. So that tells us where the focus is. The focus is on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But if Jesus Christ is the focal point of all history, then so is the church. The church is also the focal point of all history. Why? Because when Jesus Christ ascended and left this planet and returned to the Father, awaiting that time when he would return in glory, he passed on his redemptive work to the church to his apostles, and ultimately to all the followers of Christ. So the church is at the heart of history. It is the heart of the story of the gospel. And just as God used Israel in the Old Testament as the means by which he bring redemption to the world, so now God in the New Testament is using the church. And we need to understand as Christians the importance of the church, what it is, and what's our place in it. And so that's really what this Lenten series is all about. It's about the church, what it is, and what our place in it is. And you can see the importance of the church in the New Testament when you think of all of the images that are used to describe it. The church is sometimes described as a body uh, with hands and feet and a, a head, Jesus Christ being the head. The church is sometimes described as a temple. The church is described as a bride. The church is described as an army. And we're going to be taking a look at a number of these images over the course of the next several weeks. But the church is also described in many respects as a family, as the family of God. And it's my pleasure to be able to kick off this series. The other clergy are going to be doing the other subjects. 
But it's my pleasure to be able to kick it off and talk in particular about what it means to be the family of God, what it really means to be the church as the people of God. And in many ways, this is, I think, one of the most touching images that we find in the New Testament. The church as the family of God, not as bricks, mortar, and stone, but as a people. What does it mean to be a family? What does it mean to be the family of God in particular? Back in 1968, there was a well-known Christian doctor and psychologist and pastoral counselor named Paul Tournier. And he wrote a book called A Place for You. And in the opening chapters of that book, which incidentally you can still find online, you can still get a copy of it. It's a great little book. But in the opening chapters of that book, Tournier tells the story of a young man that came to see him one day. The young man had grown up in a religious home but it was not a healthy religious home. When I say religious, I meant that the, the parents believed in God and they went to church, but whether or not they had a true and lively faith is another matter entirely. At any rate, the, the family was fractured. Uh, a divorce took place between the father and the mother. It was a painful divorce, and this deeply affected the boy. And over the course of his life, he never really got over it. He struggled. He got in trouble with the law. During his period of adolescence, he was always going from one place to another, always searching, always longing for something, always getting into difficulty. And finally, in desperation, he heard about Paul Tournier, made an appointment, and sat down with this famous pastoral counselor and medical doctor. And they spent several sessions together. And finally, at the end of one of these, Tournier put a very pointed question to the young man. He said, tell me. If you could just distill it down into one thing, what is it more than anything else that you are really searching for? What is it that your heart is really longing for? If you could say there's one thing that is missing in your life, what would it be? And the man thought for a moment, and then he looked up with tears welling in his eyes, and he said, a place. He said, I suppose my whole life I've been looking for one thing, he said, I've been looking for a place, a place where I belong. And if you think about it, this is a universal human longing, isn't it? Southerners certainly understand the importance of place. Southerners get very attached to places, don't we? Of course we do. I was reminded of um, a story one time when um, I was a young seminarian, and I remember sitting in a church one day, it was a southern church, Christ Church in Alexandria, Virginia, and a lady sort of scooted over, I probably was sitting in her pew that day, and she scooted over and she came up to me and she asked me a question, she said, where do you come from? And I told her where I came from, and then the next question was this, and who are your people? a place, and a people. We all have a longing for this. We all have a desire for this. When God led the children of Israel out of their captivity in Egypt, he was leading them, took them 40 years to get there, but he was leading them where? To a promised land, a place, a place that was specifically designed for them. When I think about Jesus' final words to his disciples on the night of the Last Supper, what is commonly referred to as the farewell discourse, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. 
They were troubled because Jesus had been talking about the fact that he was going to be leaving them and leaving them in a most dramatic and terrible way. He was going to be crucified on the cross, and he said, let not your hearts be troubled because I go away, but I go away to do what? To prepare a place for you. There is this universal human longing for place and for a people. Reminds me of the funny story. How does an Irishman propose marriage to a young woman? I learned this when I was in Ireland two years ago. He gets down on his knee and he looks into his beloved eyes and he said, Darling, will you do me the honor of being buried with my people? <laughs> a people and a place. There's a very powerful image of this in the Old Testament. It's the story of Ruth and Naomi. If you've read the book of Ruth, you know the story that Naomi and her husband and her children had wandered out of Israel, and her two sons had married foreigners, which was forbidden, incidentally, by the Old Testament law. They'd married Moabites. And then the father and the two sons died. And Naomi, this widow, decided that she was going to go back to her own people, go back to Israel. But she had these two daughters-in-law, both of whom were foreigners. And so she decided that she was going to send them back to their own people. It's important to have a place and have a people. She was going to send them back to her own people, and she was going to go back to her own people. And you remember that one of the daughters went back to her own people, but another one, Ruth, clung to her mother-in-law. And in those famous words, I memorized them as a kid from the King James Version, entreat me not to leave thee, nor to refrain from following after thee, for whither thou goest, I will go, and whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God shall be my God. To be a family is to have a place, and it's to have a people, my friends. And we all long for it. A place where we are loved, where we are included, where we are known and loved in spite of the fact that we are known. This is something that we are hardwired for. If you go back to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 2, and you look at the story of the creation account, you'll notice that God goes through each successive act of creation. He creates the sun, He creates the moon, he creates the dry land, he creates the seas, he creates all of the creatures. And after each successive act of creation, what does God say? He looks on what he has made and he pronounces a blessing. He said, it is good, it is good. And he gets to man and he said, it is very good. It is good, good, very good until, until one point, until Genesis chapter 2, 18, when God suddenly looks on everything that he has made and for the first time he says, there is something that is not good. What's not good? For man to be alone. Those of you who have been in classes with me before have heard me say, cats are solitary creatures, but human beings are not. You and I were created to be in fellowship with one another. One of the worst things that you can ever do to a human being, one of the worst punishments that can be afflicted upon a prisoner is to place them in what? Solitary confinement, because you and I were created. Now, there are times, granted, when you and I don't want to be around other people. There may even be times when you don't particularly like other people, but it doesn't change the fact that you and I need 
other people. We were created to be in fellowship, and this is part of what it means to be the church. I like to say that we all have, I don't know how many of you remember that old sitcom Cheers. You remember that? What was the theme song? I want to go where everybody knows my name. So we have this desire within us all to have a place and to have a people. And yet, like that young man that Paul Tournier counseled all those years ago, the fact remains that many people today, many, many people, feel as though they are without a family. And I'm not just talking about a physical plant family, but I mean that they don't feel as though they have a people. And many people feel that they don't really have a place, a place where they are accepted, a place where they belong, a place where they have a part to play. Why is that? Well, the Bible tells us why. The Bible is very clear. The reason why many people are longing for something else is because of alienation. They have been alienated from the God who made them, and they have been alienated from each other. That's exactly what sin does. You're no doubt familiar with the story of Cain and Abel in the book of Genesis. You know the story. Cain killed his brother Abel. And what was the punishment for his sin? What did God do to him? Well, in verse 12, we read these words. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. What was the punishment of Cain for killing his brother Abel? We're told that he was made to be a fugitive, a wanderer. What was the punishment for Adam and Eve when they ate of the tree they were not supposed to eat of? They were driven from the Garden of Eden. They were driven from the presence of God. They were barred from entering into fellowship with him. That, my friends, is a picture of what sin does to us. And that's one of the reasons why so many human beings have this universal desire for place and for people, and yet they simply cannot fulfill it. They cannot find it. And they wander their whole lives looking for love, as the old song says, in all the wrong places. We're alienated. Alienated from whom? Well, obviously alienated from God. St. Augustine said, O Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. You know, there are some people that come to church their whole lives. They've said the prayers, they've received the sacraments, they've been confirmed by the bishop, and yet they still feel restless. There is still something missing. They may know a great deal about God. They may have memorized the catechism. But while they know a great deal about God, they don't know God. And there's a profound difference between those two. I had seminary professors that knew a great deal about God, but they never really knew him personally. And as a consequence, they are alienated. They are separated. And they are longing. They are looking for something more. If you've ever read Mary Shelley's classic Frankenstein, and by the way, I, I commend it to you. Many people say, well, I don't like horror novels. It's a great book. It's a great book. And the story, of course, is of this creature that has been made by Dr. Frankenstein, who in a fit of, of depression at the loss of loved ones, tries to overcome death, and he creates this great monster. And basically the gist of the story is how this monster seeks out his master, seeks out Dr. Frankenstein. And Frankenstein realizes what he's done, and he flees. He, he flees this creature that he has made. He tries to escape it. 
And the final chapters of the book, the monster is pursuing him wherever he goes, and, and, and he's encased in ice. Uh, there's, he's on a ship, and the ship is in the, near the polar ice cap, and it gets caught in the ice, and it can't escape, and Dr. Frankenstein is panicked, and he can see this creature coming across the ice toward him, and he's fearful, and he cries out, what do you want from me? And the creature cries back, I want to know why you have made me thus. See, it's only in a relationship with God that we can understand who we are and what we were made for. So many of us spend our whole lives wondering what our raison d'etre, our purpose on earth is. People spend billions of dollars on an annual basis going to psychiatrists and psychologists trying to figure that out. And the problem is you can never figure it out. You will never know it unless you have a relationship with the one who made you and created you for a purpose. And since many people are alienated from God, they're just like Frankenstein, looking for purpose, crying out, why have you made me thus? But sin doesn't just alienate us from God. It alienates us from one another. Perfect picture of this in the book of Genesis right there at the beginning of the Bible, where Adam and Eve eat of the tree that they were forbidden to eat from. Do you remember what happened? We're told that they recognized that they were naked, and they went and they hid in the garden as God came walking in the cool of the day. And when God finds them, he cries out to them, why are you hiding? Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat from? And what was the response of Adam? The woman... Thou gavest me, she caused me to eat. And the Lord turns to the woman, he says, what is it that you have done? And what does she say? The serpent beguiled me. Isn't it interesting that that is exactly what we do when we find ourselves caught doing something that we're not supposed to do. The first thing we do is we try to make excuses, don't we? And we not only try to make excuses, but oftentimes we try to blame other people. Well, I am the way that I am because of what my mother or my father did to me. We never want to take responsibility for ourselves. If you think about it, Adam wasn't just blaming his wife. Truth be known, he was blaming God. The woman. But the woman you gave me. Lord, if there's anyone to blame for this mess that I've gotten myself into, you're the one to blame. How many times do you find that to be the case? How many times when somebody accuses you of something and deep down in your heart of hearts you know that they're right, but you become defensive? It's almost a natural reaction. Well, in fact, it is a natural reaction. It is our sin nature that reacts that way. And so we find ourselves, as a consequence, alienated from our Creator, without which we can never understand our purpose on earth, and we find ourselves alienated from others. And what is the weight of alienation? The weight of alienation is too much for anyone to bear. That's exactly what Cain said when God said, you shall be a sojourner, a wanderer in the world. Cain cried back, oh Lord, not that. That is a punishment that is too great to bear. It is a punishment that is too great to bear. Now the question arises, What's to be done about this universal alienation that we all have? This universal longing for a people and a place where we are known and loved in spite of it. What does God do about this? Well, we're told God has a plan to deal with our alienation. 
God adopts us. He adopts us into his family. I know many of you have heard me say this before, but it's something that needs to be stressed. We are living in an age in which many people feel that we are all children of God. This is a very popular notion these days. Aren't we all children of God? doesn't matter who we are, where we come from. I want you to know that is not a biblical notion. We are not all children of God simply because we have been created by God. The Bible tells us that we are all creatures of God. We are unique among the created order. We have been made in God's image. But listen to this. You only become a child of God by adoption. In John chapter 1, we read this. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to that which was his own, that is, his own people, but they did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He gave them the right to become the children of God, not by blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Paul says exactly the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this. He describes this of what we really are in our natural state. He said, But as for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, so that we were by nature children of wrath. See, that's what we are by nature, my friends. By virtue of our sinful nature, and we're all born into it, we're all OS positive, we are by nature children of wrath. And if we are going to be transmitted or translated or transformed into something else, what God has to do is he has to take us from being children of wrath to becoming children of God. And how does he do that? He does it by grace. He does it by adoption. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, sums this up beautifully. This is exactly what we've been talking about. In 1 Peter chapter 2, the great apostle says this. He says, But as for you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Think about that. Once you were not a people, you were children of wrath. But now by grace, by adoption, you are a people. And you are children of God. Now oftentimes when we think of salvation, we think in terms of justification or regeneration, new birth. And that's all true. What is justification? Justification is a legal declaration that by faith in Jesus Christ, you are now in a right relationship with God. What's regeneration? That is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that comes as a consequence. And that Holy Spirit makes us alive to Christ. 
But as important as justification and regeneration are, I think for the deepest longing of the human heart, the most important thing that God does for us in salvation is not merely to declare us righteous, not merely to give us a new birth and transform us into holy people, but the most important thing that God does is He does what? He adopts us into His family. If you think about it, that's really what we want, isn't it? Think about that colic for purity at the beginning of the liturgy. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. How many of you find that a little frightening? <laughs> unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden. How many of you have secrets? Let me see a show of hands. That even your spouse does not know. Now you say, oh, they know everything I've ever done. Do they know everything you've ever thought? How would you feel if I was able to throw up on the screen here the thoughts of your hearts and your minds right now? How many of you would be back for church on Sunday? <laughs> Probably not too many. And yet that colic for purity is actually a message of encouragement. What does it say? It says that God knows us fully. He not only knows the things that we've done, He knows the things we would like to do if nobody would catch us at it. And yet He loves us in spite of it. If you think about it, that is really what we all long for, isn't it? To be truly known with all of our faults, all of our blemishes, all of our sins, and yet to be loved in spite of it. And to be adopted into a family where there's no more judgment but love and acceptance. That's what God does for us in salvation. We are longing for a people. We are longing for a place. And that is what God does. He overcomes our alienation by His blood shed upon the cross. And He adopts us into His family. It is the thing that human beings want more than anything else. To be adopted into the family and to be unconditionally loved. Now you have to ask yourself, what specifically does that mean? What exactly does it mean to be adopted into God's family? Okay, it means to be known and to be fully loved, but what else does it mean? Well, I would suggest to you that it means three things in particular. First of all, it means that you are given a new status. You were once a child of wrath, you have now become a child of God. I like to describe this in terms of a wedding. If you were in the Sunday school class this past weekend when we were talking about Ephesians, I used this image. And I think it's a great image. There's this young woman. Her name's Meghan Markle. She's getting ready to marry Prince Harry. Now, she's a commoner. She doesn't come from royal stock or from royal blood. Let's say that she lived a very disreputable life. As far as I know, she hasn't aside from the fact that she was in Hollywood. But she, let's say that she did, for the sake of argument, that she lived a very disreputable life. Now the members of the royal family, the Queen of England, the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Charles, and all the rest might argue with Prince Harry that he should not marry a young woman that's not worthy of being a princess. But once she passes into St. George's Chapel, and she says her wedding vows, and Prince Harry says his wedding vows, and she comes back out of the church, regardless of whether or not she was worthy of being called a princess, she has become a what? A princess. 
Now we can all hope that over the course of years she will begin to grow into the role that she has now called to fulfill, been called to fulfill. But the reality is, regardless of whether or not she's worthy of it, she has been given a new status. She is Her Royal Highness. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, when you get adopted into His family, you are given a new status. There is a sense in which you enter into the relationship as Miss Sinner, but when you come out of the relationship, you are Mrs. Christian. You are united to Christ. And it is a union that is irrevocable. It cannot be broken. Till death you do part. This is one of the things I try to tell young couples. It doesn't matter if you go through a divorce. You, you think you can go through a divorce and you're rid of that man or you're rid of that woman and you're free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last, but you're never free. It's a spiritual bond that has taken place. What God has joined together, man cannot separate. And oftentimes people struggle with this for the rest of their lives. Now that's not to say that there is not redemption and hope on the other side of divorce, but I can tell you it's never easy. A bond has taken place. That is exactly what happens when you and I are adopted into the family of God. You all know this because you've been in my classes before. But in the ancient world, you could disinherit your natural children, but you could not disinherit your adopted children because you made a conscious decision to include them in your family. When you and I are included into the family of God, nothing, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come, nothing in all of creation, and that includes you, nothing in all of creation can ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus your Lord, a new status. Now, you may think to yourself, well, I'm not worthy. Well, that may be true, but you're still included. I was walking through the cemetery just last night, and I crossed a tombstone. It was a tombstone to the Reverend Christopher P. Gadsden, not Bishop Gadsden, but his son. And it had this wonderful inscription on it. I read it, and it actually made me tear up. In peace let me resign my breath and thy salvation see. My sins deserve eternal death, but Jesus died for me. Isn't that marvelous? That's the gospel in a nutshell. So simple. In peace let me resign my breath and thy salvation see. My sins deserve eternal death, but Jesus died for me. That's the hope we have as Christian people. And so we are given a new status. We are also given a new relationship. What is our relationship with God before we become a member of His family? It is conflict, my friends. There is a reason why every Sunday when we say the Lord's Prayer, we say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Because every time we sin, we have trespassed on God's territory. If you know your ancient history, you know that Caesar was told by the Roman Senate that he was to stay on his side of the Rubicon and the Roman Senate would stay on their side of the Rubicon. And so long as both people stayed on their sides of the Rubicon, there would be peace. But if Caesar crossed the Rubicon, there would be what? War. And what did Caesar do? Well, he didn't say on his side of the Rubicon, did it? He charged into the river with the words, the die is cast, and it inaugurated one of the bloodiest civil wars in Roman history. That is exactly what we did in Eden. That is the nature of sin, my friends. 
Sin at its heart is a desire to be God. It is a desire to be in control, to be in charge, to be the masters of our own fate and the captains of our own destiny. And when we try to be in charge of our own lives, what we're basically saying is, God, you are not. The sin of Eden was not that they ate of the fruit of the tree. The sin of Eden was that they ate of the fruit of the tree that they might what? Be like God. And let me tell you, this finds its way into every aspect of your life and mine. You all know that I have a heavy lead foot. I, I've gotten a number of speeding tickets over the course of the years. Even had to go to driving school a couple of years ago because of the number of speeding tickets. I admit it's my problem. But you know how this works. You're in a hurry to get someplace. And you're going down. Maybe you're going down Broad Street or something, and you can see all the red lights. And they're all green, and then they turn yellow. Now you know when the light turns yellow, you're supposed to put your foot on the pedal. Which pedal? <laughs> well, we all recognize you're supposed to put your foot on, on the brake pedal. But more often than not, I put my foot on the speeding pedal, the accelerator. And you go right on through that pink light, and the next thing you notice is another light in your rearview mirror, and it's blue. And, and, and you find yourself pulled over, and you're angry. If you're like me, you're angry. And who are you angry at? I'm not angry at myself. I'm angry at that cop for pulling me over, to be truthful. <laughs> now, just imagine for a moment that you're driving down Broad Street. You're not in a hurry. You're not trying to get anywhere fast. You've got plenty of time. In fact, you're going to a cocktail party, and you're early, and you don't want to be early. And so you're sort of just wandering along, taking your sweet time, and you come to a light, and all of a sudden somebody goes right around you and speeds right on through. And you think to yourself, now where's a cop when you need one? <laughs> now see, there's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. When it comes to our own lives, we want to be the masters of our own fate. We want to be the captains of our own destiny. We want to determine when things are right or wrong, what's acceptable and what is unacceptable. And that is the root of all sin. And it is a means of kicking God off the throne and saying, I will be in charge. I will be sovereign. And the result of that is conflict. We are at war with God. And here's the problem with being at war with God. You're never going to win. And there is nothing that you can offer to God, once you realize that you've messed things up, there is nothing that you and I can offer to God that God cannot provide for himself. What in the world can you and I possibly offer to God that he cannot provide for himself? So here's the real dilemma. You and I are at war with God as a consequence of our sin, and yet try as we might, we cannot make peace with God. There is nothing that we can do. But God, who is rich in mercy, who is the injured party, does what? He makes peace with us. He extends the hand of peace and reconciliation and forgiveness in the nail-pierced hands of his son, Jesus Christ. So you're given a new relationship. You are no longer at war with God. You are at peace with God. That's why Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. It doesn't mean that when he came into the world there would be an absence of conflict on earth. It means that for the first time, you and I who were at war with God could have peace with God. And once we have peace with God, we can experience the peace of God, which we all long for, that peace which passes human understanding. What the Jews call shalom, peace of heart, peace of mind. 
contentment. Contentment. So being adopted by God brings us a new status, a new relationship, and it also brings us a new community. When you are adopted into a family, the brothers and sisters that are there automatically become your what? Your brothers and your sisters. So when you are adopted into the family of God, you get a new status, a new relationship, but most importantly, you get an entirely new family. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. And by the way, the epistle to the Ephesians is, for the most part, a mini-theology centered on the church. And this is what Paul says. He said, For he himself has become our peace. He has made us both one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And through him we have both have access to the Spirit, from the Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer, listen to this, strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are members of the household of God. On one occasion, Jesus was speaking to a crowd, and a man came into the house and tapped the Lord on the shoulder and said, your mothers and your brothers are looking for you. And do you remember how Jesus responded in Matthew chapter 12? He looked around to all the people seated there, and he said, who are my brothers and my mother and my sisters? I said, these are my brothers and my mothers and my sisters. See, we get adopted into what Andrew O'Dell likes to call a forever family. A forever family. Not a perfect family necessarily, but a loving family. You know, when you're a clergyman, when everybody else goes away on the holidays, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, to visit their families, most of the time clergy have to stay here because we've got work to do. On Christmas Eve, when other people are out there with their families, we're at church. Same as Easter, same for Thanksgiving. And I remember at first, when I, when I first became a clergyman, that was a, that was a tough thing. Kristen and I had little children still in diapers, and we, we longed. Her family was not far away. We'd love to be with the family. And, and, and she had a tradition of always going home to, to her house, to her home. There's a reason why the Bible says a man shall leave his mother and a woman shall leave her home. For the first five years of our marriage, Kristen used to always refer to Greensboro, North Carolina as home. And I had to remind her, home is with me wherever I am. <laughs> but that's the way it is, you see. We, we, we get attached to those kinds of things. And it was a struggle for me. Until one Christmas Eve, when people were coming up to the rail to receive the sacrament, and I'm there distributing the body and blood of Christ. And these people were coming up and they were looking at me. And some people would, as I would hand them the bread, seize my hand and just squeeze it. And it was as though the Holy Spirit suddenly spoke to me in that moment and said, you long for a family. You long for a people. You long for a place. Here is your family. And I recognized these were my brothers, these were my sisters, my mother, my father. They were right here in the midst of them. God had given me the very family that I needed. When you become a Christian, that is what it means to be the church. 
It's not about bricks, mortar, and stone. It's about a family that's being adopted into this marvelous family. Now, there are privileges that go with that family. What are the privileges of a family relationship? Well, first of all, you get access to the Father. I think that's one of the greatest blessings we have as Christians, the blessing of prayer, to be able to go before the Father and plead your case. Read the story of the book of Esther. That's what it's all about. You get to climb up into God's lap, as it were, and pour out whatever your concerns are. You get to go before the Father with confidence. And Jesus said on one occasion, what father, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? He said, if your earthly fathers know how to give you good gifts, he said, what about your heavenly father? Will he not give you everything that you need? There's a reason why every Sunday when we say the Lord's Prayer, did you ever notice that we say, and now as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to say? You know, if you think about it, we're sinners. We, we ought to be going humbly before the Lord, right? But you see, we can go before God boldly and say, Our Father. Why? Because we have a relationship. We've been adopted into His family. Years ago, when I was the rector at St. David's in Chiral, we had a little day school. And my son, Jeffrey, was about three years old at the time. And we were, um, I was walking through the hallway one day, and the children would see me. There were about 110 children in the school. And they would always say, Hello, Father Jeff. Hello, Father Jeff. Hello, Father Jeff. And Jeffrey would shout out at the top of his lungs, Hey, Daddy. <laughs> and then he turned around to the kid behind him and he said, You have to call him Father Jeff, but I call him Daddy. And he was right. Why? Because we had a special relationship, didn't we? We had been adopted into a family. And he knew that he could climb up into my lap and ask me for anything, knowing that his father would love him. When you become a Christian, my friends, not simply knowing about God, but knowing him personally, that's what happens. You are adopted into a family. You can go boldly into the presence of your heavenly father and just pour out whatever is on your heart. If your heart is breaking, you can pour it out to him. If you are filled with joy, you can pour it out to him. And what you know is that you have a father who cares and loves and desires what is best for you. So you can go to the Father, you can go with confidence, and you are given the promise of an inheritance. Whatever belongs to the Father will one day belong to you, an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. So there are family privileges. But as we close, we need to recognize there are also family responsibilities. What are some of the responsibilities? Well, to follow the example of the head of the family. The fifth commandment is honor thy father and thy mother. That's one of the things that we are called to do. And we are to follow the example of the head of the family. And who's the head of the church? Jesus Christ. If you're a member of this family, you are expected to follow his example. Not the examples of the world, not the example of the world and the way that it lives, but you are to follow the example of your father. And in every family, everybody has duties and chores to perform. And if you're a part of the church, this is not a spectator sport. You are called 
to play your part, to bear one another's burdens, to laugh with the laughing, to weep with the weeping, to shoulder the burden, and to love unconditionally. One day, God is going to call us together, and it's going to be a great family reunion. The Bible calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's described in this way. John said, Before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, every tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The more we become this kind of a family, the more we become the kind of family that invites all kinds of people into our midst and introduces them to the head of the family and to Jesus Christ, the more their lives are transformed. And the more they are transformed, the more the church, the family of God, grows. And the more the family of God grows, the more the kingdom of God grows. And the more the kingdom of God grows, the more earth begins to look like heaven. I want you to understand, out there on the streets when you leave today, there are lots of people that are searching. They're searching for a people. They don't have a people. They're searching for a place, a place where they are going to be loved and accepted, a place where they can unburden themselves. They are looking for a family. And the question is, will they find that forever family at St. Philip's? Because that's what it means to be the church. Let that be a word of encouragement to us. It really does not matter in the ultimate sense. Now, certainly in a temporal sense, we all recognize that it does. But in an ultimate sense, it does not have matter what happens with bricks, mortar, and stone. Because that will not last. It will not last forever. The family of God, that's an eternal family. That is the family that will last forever. So let's be the church. It's needed in the world. It's the focal point of history. Let's make the family grow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for the gift of the church. We thank you, Lord, that we have been adopted into this forever family, that we have a father that we can go to in confidence, that we can pour out our heart's desires, our burdens, our hopes, our dreams, our fears, our doubts, a father who will forgive and love and give us strength to press on for the future. Lord, we pray that as the people of St. Phyllis, we would become more and more the family of God, inviting in all kinds of people who are searching for that people and for that place. Help us, Lord, to be the church for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, thank you. You're out at 1 o'clock, as promised. You still see you're going home. And, and it's the way that we operate.